All right. Jude 17 through 25. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lust. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. And then this wonderful doxology. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray this morning. Father, what a wonderful indeed doxology there at the end. We pray that you would align our hearts with the heart of that very, really, anthem of praise that we just read. The book of Jude is a reminder to us as you've kind of, you work through history and really gave a snapshot of what it is to apostatize, to abandon the faith, to not cling to the truth that you have revealed to your people. And Lord, that has been an act, a, a tragedy, a grave error, mistake, and sin that it's really been undertaken by many, many throughout the span of redemptive history. We thank you now this morning and for this series that you can continue to help us that we might be built up in our most holy faith. Lord, able to stand firm and to hold fast to that which we believe, which is that your word is precious above all else. It is to be greatly treasured, sought, consumed, and Lord, lived out. Lord, for all of these tasks, we are in great need for your grace and for your Spirit's leading. Lord, we ask that you would be merciful this morning by assisting us to that end, all for your glory and praise. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you can take your seats this morning. Yes. All right. It is recording. Well, we get to swim more laps this morning, so I trust you brought your swimsuit, so to speak. You, you know over the last few Sundays we've been swimming in some deep waters, and these are really refreshing waters. These are encouraging waters. These fuel us for the worship that we're about to do the next hour. But as swimming has a way of doing, it is also incredibly strengthening, right? Uh, one of the main goals of Equip Ministry is to do exactly what the name of the ministry implies, to equip the saints, Ephesians 4, for the work of service, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, right? We are a people who have been redeemed by the work, the finished, complete, sufficient work of Christ, of which we are thankful, yes, of which we are thankful, yes, And so we want to be a people, right, that are not like Paul described, children tossed to and fro here and there by every wind of doctrine. We want to be a people, as 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, we want to destroy every speculation and lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we want to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ, right? Even as our pastor has been unfolding Colossians chapter 2, specifically if you'll remember Verse 8, see that no one take you captive by philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of this world. And it is a fallen, broken world. And so it's for this reason, as well as obviously for the honor and glory of God himself, that a regular, systematic, thorough study of the doctrines found in this book is not, a nego- is not negotiable for the believer. It's an imperative if we are to be equipped and productive and used of the Lord. 
So just give you a reminder in case you've been in and out, or maybe this is even your first Sunday, what we're covering over the next 23, 24 weeks is really a system, it's a systematic theology study, uh, looking at the doctrines of the Bible, all right? It's going to be 13 lessons specifically that we'll expand out because the subject matter is just rich and broad. Uh, we're starting off in bibliology, how to understand the Bible and how it came to us. We then pivot to the great, great character, the main character of the Bible himself, that is God, with theology proper, and a look therein. We'll traverse to Christology, a look at the person and work of Jesus Christ, as well as that which he accomplished, soteriology, and that is that miracle of salvation. Part of that miracle is the working of the Holy Spirit, so we will open up that briefcase known as pneumatology, and then we'll look at the church, which has been established by this wondrous work, by looking at ecclesiology, and then we'll wrap up our time by getting very, very practical, looking at Christian living, uh, very practical theology components, right? For bibliology, some of the things that we're really seeking to do by God's grace is to explain the origin of the Bible, right? Revelation, how God used men to write his words to us. Our objective is also to give us a brief overview of the Bible, to present the main themes of the Bible, and to present the Bible's claims to be inspired word of God, as well as impress deeply upon our hearts and minds the veracity, completeness, and authority of the Scripture itself. Okay? Our memory verse over this particular doctrine is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. I trust you've been plugging away if you don't already. Let's just read that aloud for the sake of habit. It reads, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Now, Someone asked not long ago, we're, wow, we're spending four or five weeks in bibliology. Is that because you're selfish and you just want to teach that section for a really long time? The answer is yes. Um, no, the truth is we want to nail this down because every other doctrine coming out of this rests upon this bibliology, this understanding of the Bible. We're going to close our time with w- looking at a bit of snapshot in history of about 60, 50 years ago, uh, that the Bible itself has been under attack in very pronounced ways. And we see that today in the year 2021. All of the fruit of that undermining is coming full circle. Let's give a review of what we've covered. Get a sense of looking around the track. First Sunday, we talked about the creation of the Bible itself, looking at Revelation specifically, the revelation of God. Now, God revealed himself along two general lines. Can anyone very loudly project what those two lines were? Special and general and special revelation. Now, general revelation, those have come to us in two forms. What were those? Creation and conscience, right? Creation and conscience. Now, special revelation entails what? Right, what you hold in your hand, Scripture, the Bible itself. Now, the inspiration of Scripture was how God oversaw the process of directing men to write down His words. And part of the richness of that morning is why we looked at God, the instigator of the one who took the initiative to work through individual personalities to produce these divinely authoritative writings He's unveiled to us tremendous benefits by the fact that in His grace, He would choose to reveal Himself in written, preserved form. And we were blessed by that glance as well. We looked at 2 Peter chapter 1, that we know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. And here was, here was the kicker. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. This is a book that has been God-breathed, inspired. Last Sunday, we looked at this book's composition, 
right? Specifically, it's construction, the canonization. How did we get these 66 books, as well as various translations, of which now it seems like there are hundreds to choose from? But they're not all created equal, and that's where we left it. Now, one of the things that we did touch upon last week is that even though this book was handed down in written form, there is absolutely no indication that its reliability, its permanence, and truthfulness has in any way ever been diminished by the fact that God would choose to deliver and preserve this book for us in written form. It's not been diminished in any way, which leads us to this Sunday, as we will look at the credibility or the evidence and believability of God's Word, as well as the implications and applications. Some of the questions that we will seek to answer are, do we have the original New Testament documents? If not, what copies do we have and when were they written? And third, how does what we have compare with other books of antiquity and historical works? Now, there's a chart. We won't park a lot of time here because I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about Plato and Aristotle and Julius Caesar, okay? So look at the chart for a moment. Do we have the original New Testament manuscripts? The answer to that is no, okay? So if not, what copies do we have and when were they written and how do those compare to other works of antiquity and historical works? What you'll note is actually the Bible wins in terms of the sphere of credibility and in this category. Look at some of the famous works around that same time frame and look at specifically how many copies that we have and what is the gap from the original, right? They have that... the the copy that dates back the furthest, and then you have a column that says that particular copy of that manuscript is actually X amount of years removed from when it was originally written. What is something that you note about the New Testament manuscripts and the Greek New Testament manuscripts specifically compared to works of antiquity? The gap from the original, for even the New Testament manuscripts, is far smaller than even some of the greatest other additional works of antiquity and of history. Not to mention the fact that we have far more um, amount of manuscripts than some of those works as well. Now, I do want to give a pastoral pause because it's easy to just park at a chart and go, wow, that's fascinating. But to take this back and really pull over the car for a moment and go, when you start talking about and discussing the evidence and believability of the Bible, you have to, you have to understand this out the gate, okay? Believers, and I need us to listen, believers cannot prove to unbelievers that the Bible is God's Word. you follow? Believers cannot prove to unbelievers that the Bible is God's Word. Why? The reason is that unbelievers are spiritually, Romans 3, dead and are therefore incapable of discerning spiritual truth. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. These individuals are incapable of affirming the Scripture's believability. Paul writes, Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit. Combining, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Now notice verse 14. Here it is. But a natural man, an unregenerated man, a man still of the flesh and not of the spirit, does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, 
and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. God, through his spirit, illumines the minds of those who belong to him. He gives them the capacity to discern spiritual truth. This is something that the spiritual dead or absent of spiritual life are unable to do. Verse 15, but he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now, let's just take a moment to a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. Anyone attest to that in their own life and community and sphere of relationships? Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Of course we do. I want to point out an individual. John Pavlovitz. Something you need to know, it's in your PowerPoint. I want you to, I took the, we took the screenshots of this because I need you to read kind of the bio. This is his, I know some of you are putting it right here and that's okay. Extremely tiny. Let me tell you about John Pavlovitz. You'll notice in his bio, John referenced that he's a 20 year ministry veteran. If you look him up, he's a writer. He's an activist out of Wake Forest, North Carolina. But he's also, unfortunately, a pastor. And when you read this statement, you get the sense of why that is unfortunate. His bio reads, I'm a 20-year ministry veteran trying to figure out how to love people well and to live out the red letters of Jesus. I enjoy songwriting, exercising, cooking, hiking, and eating emotionally. I'm with you there, but I'm not with you here. This is a place where I say stuff that I think needs to be said. I welcome you to say what you believe needs to be said in response, knowing that, and here it is, ultimately the truth is somewhere in the middle. Thanks for stopping by and for reading the musings of a flawed, passionate work in progress. Sounds so noble and so righteous. Express your thoughts, I'll express my thoughts, and the truth is somewhere in the middle. Well, church, we are Northlake Bible Church. For us, the truth is not just somewhere in the middle of philosophy and human deception. It's found in this book. I want you to read what John writes. This is specifically regarding gender identity. When it comes to gender identity and sexual orientation, I'm amazed at how many Christians will rely on a literal handful of 4,000-year-old words written in another language by unverified authors. Then millions of flesh and blood, gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender men and women standing in front of them telling them their stories, not to mention science. That is a sin. You want to know why inerrancy, infallibility, bibliology matters? It's because when it doesn't matter, you get statements like this, not from, well, not just from any individual, but from individuals who would call themselves pastor of a local church. Someone is sitting under that teaching. What, what happened? Well, this book was closed up and set to the side. Some of the two pillars that we have at North Lake Bible Church is a high view of God and a high view of Scripture. And this, along with many, many other reasons, is why. What do you do with individuals like John Pavlovitz? Well, you live out First Peter 3.15, right? Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And while you do this, make a defense to everyone who asks of you, 
Believers, you do so knowing that you can't convince unbelievers. That's not within your capacity, and therefore that is not your role. Unbelievers, therefore, should be confronted with one and only thing. And what is that? What is it? The gospel, right? Unbelievers should be confronted with one thing and one thing only, and that is the gospel itself. Once that individual is saved by God's grace, not of your doing, it's a monogistic work, right? He does it. The Holy Spirit in that moment will convict the person of the fact that this Bible is God's Word. John MacArthur writes the following, The internal testimony of the Holy Spirit illuminates the believer so that he knows that the Scriptures are the Word of God. Now, this doctrine of illumination doesn't mean that we know everything, right? Deuteronomy 29.29, the secret things belong to the Lord. And it doesn't mean that we don't need teachers. And it also doesn't mean that understanding doesn't require hard work. 2 Timothy 2.15 tells us to be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. For us as believers, those who have been regenerated, praise God, those who have been indwelt by God's Spirit, made to be spiritually alive, some of the reasons to find the Bible now believable, apart from even that internal testimony that God's Spirit wrought within us, would be some of the following reasons. And keep in mind, the purpose of this section is just to even simply bolster your already present conviction that the Bible is in fact God's Word. Additional things to consider when you're examining the credibility of the Bible. One, it was just written by very ordinary men. You have John and Peter who were fishermen. You have Matthew who was a tax collector. Church, the takeaway is that God did not use the profound minds of philosophers of His day. He used very common men to, ver- to write a very uncommon book. So that when you look at the book and go, wow, this is... Y- men, ordinary men, were used to write this phenomenal book that's been preserved and impacted the lives of millions and millions of people along church history. Leads us to the second point, just that the fact that the Bible is this powerful, dynamic book that it's proven to be. It's changed lives, and it also continues to convict God's people of sin and leads them down the paths of righteousness. It continues to be fruitful to an exponential degree, unlike any other book before it. It has had more influence, impact, than any other book. Third, the Bible is historically accurate. It gives credible evidence for Everything from creation and fossil records and historical, historical events and etc. In fact, you look throughout the Bible, even some realms of history regarding the heavenly planets, right? The heavenly bodies. Some of those things the Bible was describing in descript detail prior to even science catching up and proving that to be so. Fourth, Jesus Christ himself confirmed the believability of scriptures. You see throughout the Gospels, Matthew 5, that he believed in the law and the prophets. Matthew 12, he believed in Jonah. And Matthew chapter 10, he believed in the historical narrative that was those days of Sodom and and Gomorrah. Not to mention the fact there are even prophecy after prophecy concerning the Messiah that confirm the believability of the Bible. We'll just give a few. The birthplace of the Messiah was predicted some 700 years prior to it being fulfilled, from Micah chapter 5. Christ would be born of a virgin in Isaiah 7. Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem was predicted 700 years before it occurred in Zechariah 9.9. Christ's crucifixion. And suffering was prophesied again 700 years prior in Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. Church, these are prophecies, 
made about events that would occur hundreds of years later, and they were fulfilled. And each of them proved historically accurate down to the smallest, smallest detail. Apart from the Bible itself claiming to be the Word of God, this is a book that has all the marks of being the inspired Word of God. Everything that you would anticipate from a book that was God-breathed. Why do I mention these prophecies? Christians, each of these prophecies should strengthen your resolve about the believability and origin and nature of the Bible. It has spoken truthfully at every turn and will continue to do so, as we will look in just a moment. The fifth reason, as we look at the Bible's credibility, and again, not that we even need it, but it's remarkable to see how internally consistent that it is. That is, you have a book comprised of 66 smaller books, and within... There are no errors and there are no contradictions. It was written over a period of 1,600 years by 40 different authors in three different languages, and yet the Bible remains without error or contradiction. Now, this was not for lack of trying by the naysayers, right? There have been plenty who have opposed the Bible and have sought at every turn to undermine its credibility. However, no man... No man has ever found information in the Bible that can be proven to be wrong. No book has been more scrutinized than this very book, and yet it still stands strong as God's infallible word. This brings us to a very precious and important theological suitcase, and that is the doctrine of infallibility and inerrancy. Two theological terms that are often used to explain the nature of the Bible. And they are used to point out how the Bible is different from all other books that have ever been written. Now, over the span of time, these words were frequently used interchangeably, synonymously to one another. Infallibility simply means it is incapable of making mistakes and inerrancy meaning the complete absence of mistakes. Now that seems very subtle, but we'll unpack that in just a moment. It's incapable of making mistakes. Inerrancy means the absence of any mistakes. And these two concepts arose when the issue of the of divine inspiration of the Bible was being addressed. You had questions such as, in what sense or what degree is the Bible divinely, the divinely inspired Word of God? In what sense? And how does it differ from all books? Individuals throughout church history began asking these questions. And while some Christians have used infallibility and inerrancy interchangeably, they are normally used in slightly different ways. So for us, any meaningful study at the look at bibliology has to do a number of things. One, we have to define each theological term. Secondly, we have to explain the biblical basis as well as the differences between the two. Third, we have to describe how both have been under attack in recent days. And fourth, we have to discuss the implications of said attack. Let's look at defining our terms. One of our kids recently began looking at and studying logic in, in class, our homeschool class, right? Phenomenal teacher he has, world's best teacher. It's important to define our terms. Now, of the two terms, infallibility is the broadest in its meaning and application. Infallibility simply means it's unable to mislead or fail in accomplishing its divinely ordained or intended purpose. It's unable to mislead or fail in accomplishing its purpose. Now, if that's the case, if it's incapable of misleading and failing to accomplish its divinely intended purpose, 
That means this book has irreproachable, right, authority. It has unimpeachable authority. It is a final authority because why? It is a divine authority. It's God's authority. Though heaven and earth shall pass away, its words of truth will stand forever. Now, when you think about unable to mislead and unable to fail in accomplishing its purpose, I want us to think for a moment, practically speaking, what are some of the natural and wonderful implications of the Bible being infallible or incapable of misleading and failing in accomplishing what it intends to do so? What are some of the implications? What's that? Total trust, Miss Allen says. Absolutely. Total trust of who? Right, us. Anything else? Miss Allen just said it all. Total trust, two words. That's what she does, right, Mark? Just puts it right on the money. Total trust. That means every time you open it up, it, it is incapable of leading you astray. Isn't that sweet? It's incapable of leading you astray. We indeed have all that we need for life and godliness. Article 11 of the Chicago Statement on Biblical Errancy in 1978, and if you know anything, we'll look at it in a moment. This is a very pivotal time in church history, which was not that long ago. Defined infallibility the following way. We affirm that Scripture, having been given by divine inspiration, is infallible, so that far from misleading us, it is true and reliable in all the matters it addresses. Friends, does that not bolster your already present confidence in this book? Far from misleading us, it is true and reliable. Next Sunday, we're going to look at some of the characteristics of this word before we then look at how to how to know this word or study this word, one of them will be the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, inerrancy is significantly more specific in its meaning and application than infallibility. Remember, we said infallibility means unable to make a mistake. Inerrancy means the absence of any mistake. And what's the subtle change there? The difference? Inerrancy literally means without error. And when applied to the Scripture, it means that the Bible is without error in the original copies, in the original manuscripts. Therefore, it's free, if properly interpreted, from affirming anything that is untrue, or contrary to fact. To put this another way, it speaks truthfully in every single word. Every incidental detail, every historical event, every reference is 100% impeccable and true. Now, this definition of inerrancy doesn't mean that the Bible tells us every fact that there is to know about a particular subject, but it does affirm that what it does say about any subject is true and trustworthy. Now, for us this morning in this space of equipping for the work of service, why be so specific about definitions? I'll tell you why we're so specific. It's because there's a lot at stake of making sure that your terms are properly defined. You see, there are those today, even within those that say they are a part of the church, they argue that the Bible can contain errors of fact while still accomplishing its purpose. They see no problem trusting the Bible as their final standard of faith and practice while still possessing contradictions and errors. For instance, while inerrancy and infallibility had been really routinely and separably linked, you had something dating back as early as the 1960s that began to shift in drastic ways. In the 60s, infallibility became a term used in a way that 
those who believed in what's called limited inerrancy. And if you're wondering what that means, you can just guess by the phrase. You see, they commandeered this word infallibility to mean that the Bible is infallible and that it teaches us no false or misleading doctrine related to faith and practice. However, in their view, that does not necessarily mean that Scripture has to be factually accurate in all its words. You had individuals coming out of various educational institutions, one of which was Fuller Seminary, that really began bringing this to the scene. Now, I want to ask you this morning, you don't have to be an astute church historian to ponder this. The Bible can sufficiently accomplish all that God divinely intended for it to accomplish and still be a book full of errors and contradictions. What would motivate someone to believe in limited inerrancy? Can you think of any reasons or motivations? Yes. They want the luxury of rejecting some things while still adhering to others. And when you start to espouse this now new theology of limited inerrancy, it's infallible but not inerrant, that gives you the freedom and the license to do just that. I think another motivation behind this alteration in definition was they also wanted the luxury of of denying inerrancy and yet maintain an identification with orthodox faith, right? Translation of that, they didn't want to be excommunicated, as it were. And in that time, if you started denying inerrancy, uh, there was a bit of shame and, and shunning that happened. But if you could be clever with your terms, perhaps you could weasel your way in and still be in the mix of what individuals deem to be orthodox faith. The only issue is that, biblically speaking, friends, there is nothing orthodox about affirming infallibility and yet denying inerrancy. It just doesn't work. And we'll unpack why. Another motivation that even Econominus mentioned, and even perhaps John Pavlovitz would agree with, one motivation was simply that three-letter word known as sin. You see, a denial of inerrancy is motivated by an unwillingness to accept what God has spoken. And in that vein, deniers of inerrancy often then seek to do what? They seek to excuse sin and affirm unbiblical behaviors by such efforts. And your view of limited inerrancy enables you to do that. For us, in the quest to be equipped... Make a defense. What's the biblical basis for the infallibility and inerrancy of God's Word? Does the Bible teach its own inerrancy? Or is inerrancy simply a logical deduction by very, very pious or religious men? Does the Bible teach its own inerrancy? The answer unequivocally is yes, without question. The Bible teaches its own inerrancy, and it does so through two general lines of biblical evidence. One, the Scripture is specifically and explicitly said to be the truth. And secondly, the character of God demands that His verbal revelation and Scripture be truthful. Scripture explicitly says that it is truth, and the character of God demands that His verbal revelation be truthful. Let's look at the first the Bible teaching in its own inerrancy. You have Psalm 12.6. The words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. That's a, an example, an object lesson of absolute perfection, purity, no defilement. Psalm 19, David, we read it that first Sunday. He gives six statements about God's special revelation in words each containing a special name and attribute and effect of that word. It is perfect, it's sure, it's right, it's pure, it's clean, it's true. All of these terms that are synonymous for being inerrant. 
You have Proverbs 30, verse 5. Every word of God is to be tested. It is tested. It's a smelting term carrying the idea of being purified of all imperfections or all dross. It's refined. It's flawless is what it's conveying there. And you know what's wonderful about Proverbs 35 is the rest of the verse. It's the natural implication that it conveys as well as its connection to infallibility that it accomplishes its divinely intended purpose. Every word of God is tested. And then it says, He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. It will accomplish its purpose in your life. Now, regarding the character of God, God's character demands inerrancy. You look back at Numbers, in a most ironic of episodes, you have in Numbers 23, 19, you have a perfect God speaking perfect truth through a most imperfect person. He declares through the sinful lips of a sorcerer named Balaam, God is not a man that he should lie. Even though error and falsehood often, often characterizes the speech of human beings, it's the characteristic of God's speech, even when spoken through sinful beings, that is never false and never, ever affirms error. The prophet Samuel, confronting Saul for his disobedience and the subsequent consequences that would follow, proclaimed the following, The glory of Israel will not lie. He's incapable of doing so. John testified that God is true, voracious, truthful, honest, dependable, is the nature of the word there. Romans 3, 4, Let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. Elsewhere, Titus 1-2, God cannot lie. He's unable. Hebrews 6-18 echoes the same thing. It's impossible for God to lie. John 14-6 is God the Son, the mediator of inspiration Himself, who is said to be truth. 1 John chapter 5, it's the Holy Spirit who is the agent of inspiration. That is truth itself as well. What are we conveying here? Friends, if Scripture is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16, then what is authored is naturally and necessarily free from error, inerrant, and it's incapable of failing in its divinely ordained purpose, infallible. When you're memorizing 2 Timothy 3.16, this is what's at stake. It is flawless, and it will accomplish all of the profound work that God desires to do in your life and has promised to do. Do you need other talking heads in your life? By all means, avail yourself to godly counsel. But if that godly counsel does not stake their life immovably to this book, and every other word that they're speaking to you is saturated in this book, you probably need to seek a different counselor. Why? This book is a treasure, as the psalmist says. Does that not impact the way that we go into the next hour? Please open your Bibles to the book of Colossians. No, I'm not asking you to do that. (laughs) I'm wanting you to imagine with me. And you open it up, and it's infallible, and it's inerrant. And you take a deep breath, and it's read to you, and you joyfully place yourself under its authority. And you're confident that it will do everything that it God desires to do in your life this morning. Isn't that amazing? Doesn't that fill you with anticipation for even the next hour? It should, and I hope it does. How do we bring this all to a close? 
Well, I trust you're convinced this morning, or at least you're resolved to understand and cherish. And you're made to sit upright. You don't want to sit on a spiritual couch. You want to stand upright. Because you're convinced that nothing less is at stake in the doctrine of inerrancy and infallibility than the character of God himself. Attack inerrancy and someone is attacking the very God that you worship and belong to. John Pavlovitz is assaulting the character of God even as he attempts to quote-unquote pastor a local church of God. What are some of the problems with denying inerrancy? And we'll put our foot on the gas. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology gives several. I'm just going to give us three. If we deny inerrancy, one, we begin to wonder if we can really trust God in anything he says. When we realize that God is capable of speaking falsely to us, you can begin to imagine how everything begins to start crumbling. This starts to have a detrimental effect on your ability to take God at his word, to trust him completely, and more importantly, even obey him throughout the rest of Scripture. We begin to disobey initially those sections of Scripture that we least wish to obey. And we begin to distrust initially those sections we are at least inclined to trust. Secondly, when we deny inerrancy, we essentially make our own human minds a higher standard of truth than God's Word itself. Which is in effect saying we know what's truth more than what God knows is truth. We know more accurately than He does. And the audaciousness of that statement should unsettle you. Third, if we deny inerrancy, then we must also say that the Bible is wrong, not only in minor details, but in some of its doctrines as well. It's like, it's like a pillar of a building, right? And you knock it over, and the building starts to, starts to teeter. And all of a sudden, other precious, beloved, fundamental, all-important doctrines that we adhere to and we will cover over the next few weeks, all of them start to become undermined. They become frail, and they don't hold water. You had two men in church history, A.A. A. Hodges and B.B. Warfield, who wrote some phenomenal works on biblical inerrancy. But in 1970, you had a few men, one by the name of Ernest Sandine, claim that the 19th century Princeton theologians as Hodges and Warfield, that they, are, they were men who created the doctrine of inerrancy to try to combat the burgeoning liberal theology that was running rampant in their day. And in 1982, John Woodbridge wrote a book called Biblical Authority, a critique of Rogers McKim, of the Rogers-McKim proposal. Those were the men that were espousing that Hodges and Warfield created the doctrine of inerrancy. And they say, John Woodbridge wrote this book to give an abundance of evidence that no, Warfield and Hodges didn't create the doctrine of inerrancy. In fact, this was a dominant view of those throughout church history going back to the earliest of days. In that book in 1982, Woodbridge offered a devastating critique of Sandine and Rogers and McKim and all those who would follow in their footsteps. I want you to notice what Woodbridge wrote in his book, He quoted Martin Luther. It's a great book because it literally works through the early church, through the Reformation on down. The belief in inerrancy has always been a part of the church, and that's because the character of God is at stake. Martin Luther wrote wrote the following, Whoever is so bold that he ventures to accuse God of fraud and deception in a single word, and does so willfully again and again after he has been warned and instructed once or twice, 
will likewise certainly venture to accuse God of fraud and deception in all of his words. Therefore, it is true, absolutely, and without exception, that everything is believed or nothing is believed. The Holy Spirit does not suffer himself to be separated or divided so that he should teach and cause to believe one doctrine rightly and another falsely. Inerrancy and infallibility have been believed by those who have loved Christ throughout church history. I encourage you to come next week because we get, begin to look at the authority, clarity, and necessity and sufficiency of this book as well. If you'll bow your heads, let's go ahead and pray for our next hour. Let's thank the Lord for this book we get to again sit under. Father, I pray that you would, you would accomplish two things this morning, two things that come to mind. Lord, one, would you make us a convicted people? And two, Lord, would you make us a discerning people? Father, we pray, one, you would convict us, whereas we champion this doctrine and revel in this doctrine of inerrancy and infallibility. Lord, there's been a lot of facets and areas of our life, even this past week, that have not correlated to that great doctrine. Perhaps we have not availed ourselves to the treasure that it is as we had ought. Perhaps we have spurned its instruction via sin. Perhaps we have sought other forms of of counsel and instruction that Lord, that would be less than faithful to this book. In all of these instances and others, Lord, we pray that you would reveal those to us and convict us and show us the way of repentance. May this following week look markedly different. Lord, secondly, we pray for your glory and honor and for the purity of the church that you would make us a discerning people, shrewd and cunning, able to look at what Paul described as human philosophy and the elementary principles of this world. Lord, would we be able to see them from a mile away because our lives are so staked so closely and so intimately to the instruction found in this book. Lord, make us a discerning people and we know and trust that as you do so, Lord, you will make us a productive, faithful people for your glory. And we give you thanks in advance now, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.